From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined's Science News Roundup. On today's program, we've gathered two of our favorite fellow science geeks to talk about artificial intelligence, great white sharks, illegal pollution, snail genes, and new rules for leaders at the National Institutes of Health. As always, we'll talk about some other things that happened in the world of science this month that didn't get much attention, but should. It's Undisciplined Science News Roundup, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Once a month on this program, we gather together a few of our favorite people to talk about some of the biggest stories in science, research, and exploration. And in true undisciplined fashion, we do this with a panel of people from vastly different backgrounds. Joining us in studio today and making her third appearance on the Roundup is Sheena McFarland, the Director of Marketing and Communications at the David Eccles School of Business. What is a business school executive doing on a science show? Well, Sheena is also one of the most ardent science enthusiasts we know. With a degree in biology teaching and an insatiable interest in astronomy, Sheena, thanks for being with us today. So excited to be here. And with us for the second time on the Roundup and the third time as a guest on our program is Joseph Wilson, an evolutionary ecologist from Utah State University, where he runs the Insect Evolution Lab and runs around the country looking for new species. He's the author of The Bees in Your Backyard, A Guide to North American Bees, and we always enjoy having him on the show. Welcome back, Joe. Thanks. Happy to be here. A quick note, we were also going to be joined by engineer Swomitra Mohanty, but he is caring for a sick daughter. We are sorry to miss you, Swomitra, and we hope your daughter feels better. Okay, so you've both been on the Roundup before, and you know how this works. I'd like to start today deep within our minds, where our neurons are working really hard to help us perceive the world. We generally believe that the nerve cells in our brains do this through very intricate connections. But what can a single nerve cell perceive and remember? Well, that was the question asked by a team of researchers at Harvard. And the answer is sort of scary. So here's what happened. There was this monkey. His name was Ringo. And he's sitting in a lab and these images are being created by an artificial intelligence algorithm. They're flickering in front of his eyes. And what the algorithm is trying to do is create a picture that will stimulate one neuron, just one specific cell. And each time the image flickers, it changes a little and the AI gets closer and closer and closer to an image that is designed to stimulate this one single cell. And when they get there, the picture that emerges, well, it's pretty uncanny. The researchers say it looks a lot like the monkey that is in the cage right next to Ringo. And so then they do this again with a different neuron, and they come up with a picture that looks a lot like one of the monkey's human caretakers. Guys, we've talked about some wild stuff on this program, but I don't think anything I've come across has been so science fiction-y as this. I think this was super weird, and I'm not a neuroscientist. That's my preface. But when I look at these pictures, I don't necessarily see the monkey's friend or the monkey's caretaker. And I think in the article, they acknowledge that, that these pictures are fairly abstract. I think it's kind of interesting to think that the complexity of a brain, including a monkey's brain, can be condensed down to a single neuron and that that one neuron is actually doing something. And yes, the two different neurons show different pictures with air quotes around different pictures. So I think it's pretty neat. It's cool that we're doing this, but what my take-home message was from this is a brain is super complex. So one neuron and AI software convinced me that the brain is super complex. Does this study make you start imagining the implications, like what you could do with this moving forward. To me, it's a little bit crazy. It's a little bit scary. 
So there's two neurons that we saw in this study, two different pictures. There's actually multiple pictures, but does that mean one neuron stores the information for one face or is it different than that? And I, I started as a bee person, I had to think of bees, but bees can recognize faces too. There are studies that show like a honeybee can recognize different pictures. Then it makes me think, what about a simpler brain? Does it work the same? Does one neuron kind of store one picture? The other thing I was thinking about is, is this picture stored in that neuron permanently? Like, is, is it a short-term storage device or a long-term storage device or a transferable storage device? Exactly. Yeah. And then what about, does that neuron change as the faces change? You know, we recognized our sibling's face when they were five, and I still recognize my brother pretty effectively. Is it the same neuron that tells me this is my brother, or is it something else happening? You know, I ran into my mother in the grocery store the other day, and it took her a good 10 seconds to figure out who I was. But it's all about context, right? <laughs> so maybe her neuron hasn't regenerated the, enough maybe to, that one. to recognize you. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. <laughs> Um, I think about there's a disease, and I don't know the name of it or a condition, where a person no longer can recognize a loved one's face, but if they turn around and hear their voice, they know that it's there. Like, Matt, if I saw you and I didn't recognize you, I'd kind of have the stranger danger moment and be like, no, that's not my friend. I don't know who this is. This person needs to leave me alone. But if I could just hear your voice, it would be okay. And it makes me wonder, well, are those just those individual neurons that recognize your face are, are damaged or are not functioning properly? And that makes me think bigger about TBIs and brain damage in general and about what does that mean? So is this why maybe you can't come back from certain brain damage? And is there a way to continue saying, oh, well, these 10 cells can recognize this and nine of them were damaged, but one wasn't. So maybe we can reproduce that or find a way to help heal that damage in a new way. I think that's what I really like. I mean, once I got past like the uncanny valley part of the story, the thing that I really liked about it is it really shifted my understanding of how the brain is really operating. And it's not to say that I had more answers to questions. I had more questions, but they were different questions. They were questions about like, what does one individual neural cell do? I used to think that it was only part of an electrical grid that helped create memories and pictures and all of the stuff that our brains do. And now I'm starting to think about this in a completely different way. Are cells more like storage devices? In this article, they, they talk about future directions. And so this was talking about visual memories. But we've often heard that smells can trigger memories more effectively than other things. So it'd be interesting to know, like, are the same neurons that are doing visual stuff associated with smells or with sounds, as you talked about? Lots of new questions, like you said, but that's the cool thing about science, right? We get one discovery and it opens up a whole new world of new discoveries. Let's talk about something that is scary for a whole other reason. Let's talk about great white sharks. It's been a while since there have been many great whites in the area around Long Island in New York. Some people probably are happy about that. But this month, researchers tracking a shark said they believed that this shark entered the Long Island Sound, and this would be the first time that anyone had tracked an adult shark in that area. Now, that sounds like bad news, but if this did indeed happen, there are some reasons why this might be good news, right guys? When I hear stories like this, it makes me a little bit hopeful that maybe we haven't completely destroyed the planet yet, and that maybe it can get better seeing something like a great white shark in an area that hasn't seen that species in a long time hopefully means that the environment is more welcoming and that the fish are coming back in ways that they haven't been able to before. And so I'm hopeful that this means that environment is getting better and maybe healing in a way that hasn't in the last couple of decades. 
Joe, as an ecologist, like there's something significant about an apex predator returning, right? I mean, like if other animals return, that's great. But when an apex predator returns to an area, that feels more significant. Yeah, it seems like it should be more significant because of this It's kind of like a big pyramid, right? Like the food pyramid we talk about, it works in ecology too. So the bottom of the pyramid are the producers, the plants and the algae and things like that. And then at the top of the pyramid, you have these apex predators. And so you really can't support an apex predator unless everything down on the pyramid is is also kind of established there. I'm going to take the other side of the argument here. So when we see a cougar that gets reported in the avenues here in Salt Lake City, do we say, oh, look, the avenues have become a habitat for cougars again. This is awesome. We usually don't say that because we see cougars down in, in different parts of Utah in, in the rural communities, and usually it's not a good sign. We often associate these cougars coming into town with negative things in their home territory. Maybe there's not enough food for them there, so they're coming down. Maybe it was a hard winter, so they're coming down and eating our pets or different things like that. So while the food pyramid analogy works, and if we can support an apex predator, then that's a good sign. But just seeing a cougar in town doesn't mean we're supporting a cougar in town or just seeing a great white shark in the Long Island Sound doesn't mean we're supporting a a great white shark in the Long Island Sound. It could be I mean, this would be the worst case scenario that the other parts of that shark's range were poor enough that it's like, well, I guess I better go into town to look for some food. Or maybe it was just exploring. We should celebrate it, right? Because it means that at least it's looking there. At least it's saying, hey, maybe there's food here. When maybe in the past it was like, this is just a junk heap. Let's not even look. So, so there is some good in this report. Right. Because what you're saying is basically that we're observing that top of the pyramid Potentially, but we don't know. We haven't done the observations that tell us what's going on underneath. Now, we do know that the Long Island Sound is demonstrably cleaner right now than it was a decade or two or three decades ago, certainly. But as far as that applies to the other animals that have to exist there to sustain, for instance, a great white, well, for one thing, we know the great white didn't stay there. If it went in there at all, it it also left. If it went in there at all. So after they initially tweeted this that said, hey, this great white shark was in the Long Island Sound, then they kind of walked that back and said, well, we think it was there. And then they said, well, it potentially was there. So they kind of, because the tracking data is not you know super precise. And so we think it was there. We know for sure it didn't stay there. Um, but anyway, I'm not trying to diminish this story. I think it's still really cool. But I, th- I think we often want to celebrate early and say, yes, we've done it. Now I can, I can drink with my straws again, you, you know. And I think we still need to be, be on alert that says, hey, let's still try to restore this habitat. You know, we haven't finished yet. You know, Sheena, that part of the story was really interesting to me because I guess in my mind, like, our technology has evolved to a point where it's just so super accurate. Like, I look down at my cell phone, I know exactly where I am in the world. And I think we have this technology for, for instance, tracking a great white shark, too. The idea that someone who is tracking this animal could be miles off of where it may or may not have been, that, that surprised me. Last summer, I was doing a whale watching tour up in British Columbia, and they had tried to track them for a long time, but they had to be very careful with that because if they were to put a tracker actually on the animal, they found that it often got infected or bad things happened to the animal, so they couldn't do that. So they kind of had to use sonar and just kind of, well, we think they're over here. We think we're here. Let's continue talking about environmental damage. There is a chemical called trichlorofluoromethane that has been globally banned for many decades but which has recently been detected in South Korea and Japan. But according to a new study in the journal Nature, the chemical didn't come from those countries. It came from two very specific places in China. 
as much as a thousand miles away. This is like science detective work. These are unfortunately the stories that kind of break my heart. When we came together as a planet and said, hey, we have this huge ozone hole that's doing really bad things to our environment. We need to stop these CFCs, so let's ban them. And we did. And then we're seeing this progress of that hole starting to kind of shrink and close down, which is phenomenal, but not at the rate that they had hoped for. Maybe because people like this are still putting out CFCs. CFCs are much cheaper to produce and they, they give you more bang for your buck, but they have serious and horrible long-term implications for the entire planet. And it's just that selfishness that drives me absolutely up the wall where it's like, no, I'm going to have my plastic straw in my, in my cup because I want to, or it's going to be, well, I'm going to put the CFC because it's going to save me a million dollars over a year and I won't be here in 30 years when the planet's on fire. I kind of thought about myself in this because two provinces in China out of the whole world, right? But this is a detectable increase in these bad chemicals. And so then I started thinking locally here. Okay, so in Utah in the wintertime, we have some some days when we're not supposed to burn. But we often think I'm one neighborhood in a sea of houses and I kind of like my fire, right? And so we think it's not going to do very much. It's a little bit of smoke coming out my chimney. But look, it's already really polluted and it doesn't matter. It's the same kind of maybe thought process. And so I try to catch myself and say, you know, I am just one house in, a, in millions, but everybody else is also one house in millions. The more we all kind of cheat or bre- break the rules or, or just become lazy and stop thinking about it, the more damage it can create. And even that, you know, the two provinces in China, it's a measurable differences. And so just like with us, the one house or the one campfire when we're not supposed to do it or the one plastic straw, I mean, plastic straws is another story because that's a little bit overblown. It makes me think that we all individually have a responsibility. One of the things that's brought up to me is this idea of exporting our pollution problems, right? And we, and we do this here in Utah as well, right? Like we have a bunch of people who are plugging their cars into, you know, electrical outlets on the street. But the energy that it requires to create that might not have been, you know, burned here in your engine, but it was burned somewhere. And here in Utah, it was likely burned in a coal-fired power plant. That pollution goes somewhere. Maybe it doesn't get trapped in our basin for a little while, but it becomes part of the global mess of pollution. Yeah, out of sight, out of mind, right? If it's if we we celebrate when that our pollution blows out of the valley, so we have clean air, but it didn't disappear. But where did it go? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it blew out of our valley to somebody else's valley potentially, right? I think that we do very much think about our own backyard or our own valley, and nothing more than that. And the earth has air that goes around the entire planet, right? And we have to keep that clean for everybody. All of us are contributors to that. And I don't think we often think about the consequences because not all of us face those same consequences in the same way. Let's take this hopeful spin on this, though. Researchers were able to detect not just that this pollution had been released somewhere, but they were able to pinpoint the specific provinces it came from, which presumably will help the world community locate the bad actors and and stop that. So there is some hope for that global community to be able to respond to these incidents quicker and do something about it. It's funny to me that we can't track a shark in the Long Island Sound, but we can find which province these CFCs are coming from. And I did appreciate in that article the responses from some world leaders saying, hey, we need to stop this. This is not okay. We all came together. We made an agreement. We need to make sure that everyone's being held to that agreement. Let's move on to talk about snails and genes. 
This month, scientists announced they had successfully reversed the spiral of a snail's shell by tweaking just one gene. They basically took this snail that was right-handed and they turned it into a left-handed snail. Most snails are right-handed and they they created a left-handed snail. This isn't just a nifty trick, though. It might help us understand how asymmetry begins in humans. I thought that was fascinating because um, you do hear of these stories of of children born with their vital organs flipped. And because we aren't symmetrical, that causes a lot of problems throughout that person's life and often shortens their life. Just think about if you find in a developing fetus that this is going to happen, if they can insert a gene or stop a gene and have that develop that way, how amazing would that be? I thought it was really interesting because they could notice this flip in the development when when that embryonic snail was eight cells big, like really small. They could see that these cells were actually dividing differently. So yeah, you could catch it really early. Eight cells is not very many cells. Evolutionarily, there are some snails that have this right-hand spiral. Other species have this left-hand spiral, and that's, that's kind of how we determine the species in these snails. And so I thought the evolutionary implications is neat because we can, see, we can look back in time then, uh, metaphorically, to see how this shifted. And that leads to reproductive isolation because snails with a right-handed shell and a left-handed shell can't mate. I like the fact that you took this into the, the area of speciation because I was thinking about this too, right? Like, like reproductive isolation is the definition that we've used for hundreds of years to decide what is a species and what isn't. And in this case, this one gene, it may, may be two genes, but like one or two genes that are very similar to one another are responsible for this thing that sent these snails into two different directions that we now acknowledge are like reproductively isolated. It really begs the question like what a species really is then because if it's only one gene the genetic underpinnings of what species are is really kind of starting to change the way we even think about this right the scientists were actually asked if this could become a new species because of the shell direction but the authors of this paper specifically said no these are still compatible several months ago there was a snail i can't remember his name um, he was a lone snail. This that, was a really sad story. Yeah. yeah. So it's this one snail that naturally had this difference in his genes, and so his shell was turning in a different direction, and he couldn't mate with anyone else because everyone else's shells went the other way. They searched worldwide to find a compatible snail, and they did. They found another lefty, and then all the babies were righties. I think what it really shows is there's more going on to the speciation side of things, to the evolution of new species than just a single gene. And I think this study kind of really illustrates that. What's interesting with this gene that they use CRISPR to manipulate is it's very much a, a cosmetic kind of feel to it. And instead of looking at what other reproductive issues are at play here, I don't see this immediately saying two genes are going to change a species. It's going to take several other genes over time to do that. And maybe the first one is that your shell looks different from mine and I'm not going to mate with you. And so maybe other things start to come because of that. But much like your example, you do get righties when two lefties get together. And so there's a lot of other changes to be thought about there. And I think it's going to take a lot more than just scientists manipulating a gene or two to create a new species. The thing that we often talk about when we talk about CRISPR is just how easy CRISPR has made it to do gene editing and has really put into the hands of humans the ability to start even contemplating things like creating new species, not just identifying and finding new species. Look, if you can change one gene or two genes or 10 genes and still keep a reproducible animal, you've just created a new species. That's getting close to godlike powers there. Yes, there is definitely godlike power there, which is always tempting and dangerous. 
But I think about this for food production, right, and food animals, where if you can take all of the susceptibility to certain diseases, maybe you can have healthier food where you don't have to drown your beef in ammonia to make it better for you, um, those kind of things. And so there's a lot of, of potentials there with this and because CRISPR is such an easy thing to do. But it's also, do you get to play with that? And where are our ethical and moral boundaries on that? Let's talk about another change. This is a bureaucratic change. This is a little news from the National Institutes of Health this month. Under new rules starting next year, the 272 lab branch chiefs who oversee a lot of research at the institutes will now be subject to term limits of 12 years. These will be retroactive, meaning up to half of the current chiefs are going to be turned over in the next half decade. What's the idea behind this move, Sheena? I think it's very much a social justice move, right, where it's saying, look, we've had kind of the same demographic of older white men who have held these positions for their entire lifetimes until they're ready to retire. And there's no ability for a young up and comer, often people of color, often women, women of color coming up saying, hey, how are we ever going to get into this management level? And so I see the importance of being able to say, here's a term limit so that in 12 years we have fresh blood from fresh ideas, fresh perspectives coming in. I also know working in a university that good leadership can be very hard to find sometimes. And I understand the pushback from some folks saying, when you have a great leader, it's really not fair that that person gets pushed out in 12 years. And my answer to that would be to be a great leader, you have to have the ability to train because leadership, you can say is a personality trait, but really it's an absolutely learnable skill. So if they can actually teach that, then the next generation is going to be just as great and with a new fresh perspective. I have mixed feelings about about this announcement. I see the good in it, for sure. I also wonder what the job announcements will look like. Do you want this leadership job that ends in 12 years? And then what do they do with them after 12 years? Is it a, a demotion? Do they set them up to succeed after their leadership roles? Because this is slightly different. We have lots of term limits in lots of leadership roles. A lot of those leadership roles are elected roles. These are not elected positions. And so it, it has some different dynamics that I, I assume they've thought of, but it's, it's a complex system here. There are some long-term studies. Think about this study that we just talked about with the neurons. That is not a thing that you set up in a couple of years and test for a couple of years. But if you're switching leadership partway through these studies, how does that affect it? It could affect it in a positive way, or it could affect it negatively. But I think that mixing it up often is good. It leads to good results. I just want them to make sure they're supporting that new talent after their 12-year term is over. So Sheena, as the non-white male in the room, I'll give you the last word on this one. Yeah, I think it's always important to think about perverse incentives and making sure that you're not providing those in a system like this. And I think one of the smart ways to say you can set up a 20-year study, even though you're going to be in leadership for 12, is you do keep that pay grade, you do keep that kind of prestige, even if you're not in the leadership position. And I do think we've got to find ways to let people who have not had a seat at the table have a seat at the table. And this is one of those ways. 12 years is still a fairly long time. I think that having the ability to have a voice and and to have leadership, when you have a person who looks like you in your leadership position, then you're going to be more likely to come into that position. So you're going to have more diversification throughout the entire system. In the time we have left today, I wanted to know what research-related study or news caught your eye this month. Joe, you want to start us off? Sure. It's monarch season. The monarchs are moving north. They're probably in Utah at this point. We've had a cold spring. Um, monarchs are, have been shown to be in decline all over the U.S. And there's lots of conservation efforts. People are trying to get them listed as threatened and endangered species. There was this really interesting one published in February in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And so what they did, instead of just looking at the recent monarch data, 
They went back in time by looking at the last hundred years to see how monarch and milkweed, their host plant, how those populations have fluctuated. And what they found is that early in the 20th century, in the 20s and the 30s, milkweed and monarch populations were doing really well. They were expanding, but then they started to decline starting in the 50s. And so recently we hear a lot about monarch declines and we blame it on genetically modified crops. This study showed that the declines actually started in the 50s, decades before genetically modified crops were being used. And so the warning that goes off in my brain is if we only target genetically modified crops and we say, this is our silver bullet, we gotta ban these and save the monarchs, there's something else going on here. These declines were starting before these genetically modified crops, and so we need to widen our view and say, what is causing these declines? In the paper, they suggest it's related to the overall decline in the number of farms in the U.S. I think we do this in conservation as we would like there to be one thing to target so we can solve the problem. Plastic straws will solve the problem. The reality is plastic straws will not solve the problem. So we need to look more broadly. And I liked this study because of that. It causes us to look more broadly at these problems. The study I was looking at is about measles and its effects because I am just so sick and tired of the anti-vaxxer movement. I could just scream. And a lot of folks say, oh, measles isn't that bad. You get a fever, you get a rash. You might die, but you probably won't. That's hard enough. But what this study was looking at is how measles wipes out your immune system's memory, and it makes you so much more susceptible to every disease that you thought you'd had immunity against, which ends up killing you. You get a pneumonia that you didn't think you were going to be exposed to and you die, or you get chickenpox or something and it becomes much worse because your body has no way to fight it. And so it just made me even angrier at the anti-vaxxers, but also made me understand why eradicating measles was so important and why we need to continue to do so. Yeah, measles is really, a, a, it's a Trojan horse for all of these other, for susceptibility to all of these other diseases long term. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to have to leave the discussion there. Sheena McFarland, thank you for joining us again. It was a pleasure as always. And Joe Wilson, it's great to see you as well. That was a lot of fun. Thanks. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.